One last time in Series 4, the hills are alive with the sound of V10 engines. Another series of Bring Back V10s is coming to an end, and as usual, we're finishing with a pile of questions from our audience. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question via Twitter using the hashtag BringBackV10s, those who used our new email address, BringBackV10s at the-race.com, and to those of you from the Race Members Club who submitted questions as well. We've got some bonus episodes coming up for our members where we'll tag on some more answers to your questions. And if you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting early access to new episodes in the future, head to the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more. A big thank you as always to everyone who has left us a five-star podcast review and to those of you listening on platforms that don't let you leave reviews, but you've contacted us in other ways to say you'd give us five stars if you could. We'll do a final round of shout outs to some of our recent reviewers. So thank you so much to Steelers 19 City, Curly 3781, B Fishwick, Iceman 11 and House That Train Built. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for the final episode of the series are Ed Straw and Matt Beer. Now, no pressure here, but last time out, Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson rattled through more questions than usual in an impressive amount of time. So we're taking on the same challenge here in hope of answering a few more than we usually get to. So, Ed, no traditional opening question this time, but which of the questions we're trying to get through today catches your eye the most? And is it one of the many we've received about backmarkers? I don't want to give anything away, but there is a question about one driver who was always of interest during the 1990s and who made a brief appearance in the 21st century once I was covering F1. So I'm looking forward to getting into that one. But to be honest, we have such a high quality of listener of Bring Back V10s that the questions we get for these episodes are pretty much universally great. Yeah, they are brilliant. So Matt, what's, uh, what's caught your eye from the list of questions that I should point out Ed tried to claim almost in their entirety before we started recording. He tried to claim so thoroughly I had to have a three-tone colouring system to work out how much I could squeeze into <laughs> each question. Um, it's actually the first one, so in the spirit of getting a lot in, should we, should we crack straight on with that? Yeah, let's get straight to it then. Matt's favourite question. It's downhill from here. <laughs> uh, the first question is from uh, at Rich 1701 who says, imagine a scenario where Montoya and Villeneuve were Williams teammates in 2001. Yes, please. Uh, Rich says, who would have come out on top? Uh, this is this question is brilliant. I've changed my answer like 17 times in the last 48 hours because <laughs> it's basically a question of which of these two brilliantly flawed heroes was going to let you down the most in a single season. Uh, I think instinctively my heart says Montoya would come out on top because I just feel like his natural talent level was so much higher than, than Villeneuve's. But Villeneuve was uh, was so highly rated during 2000 and, and uh, as Rich has picked uh, 2001 for the hypothetical question here you know the, the, what Villeneuve was doing in the second year of BAR's existence was massively impressive probably the best he'd driven maybe the best he'd driven in F1 actually I thought his 98 season and the rubbish Williams was pretty good too um, but I think Villeneuve coming in he was being linked with all kinds of teams in the middle of 2000 there were even talks that uh, McLaren might drop Coulthard for him so I think Montoya would have been up against Villeneuve probably at his best with a lot of confidence before his uh, career started falling into comedy irrelevance. And so I think it would have been tougher than it might it might seem on paper. Um, equally, though, I still feel Montoya at his best in 2001 was absolutely sublime. OK, he had races where he went missing or stuffed it in the wall earlier or was miles off Ralph Schumacher. But, you know, the, the great days into Lagos, obviously. But I, I remember him being really impressive at Suzuka at the first attempt and that kind of thing as well. 
I think Montoya would have been a step ahead. But the most exciting thing about this question is uh, is that Williams would have been the only team that might ever have imagined pairing these two because what a kind of unproductively ridiculous pairing this would have been. How many arguments would they have had with Villeneuve's attempt to intimidate a teammate and Montoya having none of it? How bizarre would the setup directions have got with those two and nobody sensible feedback-wise involved? You could, every other team would have, would have looked at that lineup and gone, nah, nah, we don't fancy getting involved in that. But you can imagine Frank Williams and Patrick Head going, yep, yep, definitely, that's that's the obvious logical pairing. So a lovely hypothetical, would have loved to have seen it. Montoya by a whisker with loads and loads of arguments along the way. Yeah, I think it would have been utterly bonkers. Uh, 2001 maybe was the start of the Villeneuve decline. So perhaps over the course of the year, it could have been that Villeneuve would have started the stronger and Montoya might have come out on top at the end. Interestingly, they had a massive, basically, fist fight at the Canadian Grand Prix that year, which I suspect would have still happened even if they were teammates. And when we did our Montoya 2001 episode, we we didn't get into the details of it because quite a lot of the things they said to each other were uh, massively inappropriate. Um, but I, I still think, yeah, that probably still would have happened even if they were wearing the same kit. Let's move on to a question from the race members club then. Michael Armadi has said, old or new Hockenheim layout, both produced entertaining races during this era. So Ed, we'll both have a go at it. Well, you can both have a go at this, but Ed, let's go to you first. Old or new Hockenheim? Oh, old without a shadow of a doubt. The new version, it's a decent track and it's created some nice races, but the old Hockenheim was ridiculous. It's the kind of track that didn't exist elsewhere on the F1 calendar. There's lots of races I fondly remember there, including the 1994 one we've uh, talked about before that ended Ferrari's wind drought with Berger. Some great battles there on the long straights. Berger and Blundell in 1993 always stands out. Emmanuel Pirro demolishing those polystyrene marker boards in 1989, which I enjoyed, although I probably didn't realise at the time quite how much discomfort it, uh, it caused him. It's not a, a complicated track. It's just those flat-out blasts between chicanes and its latter full-length form in, in F1. But... It's just a different challenge, just something that you don't see elsewhere. And that's what I like to see, that variety, which is why I miss it. And of course, I think the old Hockenheim, we didn't kind of really know what we had because everyone always used to compare it to the Nürburgring Nordschleife. And so it always paled in comparison to that. But yeah, I, it's a little sad to see it lost. I, I visited the old track, which has been reclaimed by nature. They very deliberately tried to make it do that. And you could still see the sort of shape of the uh, of the straights within that. So it's it's sad that we've lost the venue and... Of course, the site the site of that famous boxing match between Nelson Pico and PK and Alizio Salazar. So great memories of that track. So I'm I'm Team Old Hockenheim. Yes, me, me too. For all the reasons Ed's just outlined, that just because there was nothing else like it, not every race was a classic, but enough mad things happened. There was always the possibility of a, a, an engine blow up deciding the race because it was so much more punishing than anywhere else. Even the Monza at that point. And the the, the crazily skinny wings and the cars skittering around on the braking for the chicanes. It, it could be boring. It wasn't the hugest driver's challenge, but it was like nothing else on the calendar. And we need more tracks that are like nothing else on the calendar. Yeah, old Hockenheim was great. The one thing I would say is that of the newer tracks or the changed tracks that we've had over the years, new Hockenheim is a good track for racing. And it's almost a shame that it had to come at the expense of, of old Hockenheim. There's, almost, there's a place for both of those layouts in F1. Uh, it's just a shame that we had to lose one to get the other... Uh, Ed, the next question feels right up your street. Matthew Brown asks, Ivan Capelli to Ferrari, what went wrong? 
And I should say, Matthew adds, I remember being really excited about the move after his performance for Leighton House. Yeah, and right to be excited. The short answer is that everything went wrong. The the slightly uh, longer answer <laughs> is that it, it was just a perfect move on paper that was just all all wrong. He was originally signed up for Scuderia Italia that year, but obviously because Alan Prost was uh, sacked, they needed uh, they needed a driver for '92. Capelli was the was the obvious choice. Hero of the 1990 French Grand Prix, of course, but the Ferrari F92A was was not a good car. He often had the sort of second class equipment behind John Lacey, which happens sometimes if you don't have enough bits and pieces because Lacey was the established driver. Capelli's opinion, he didn't feel it was really valued there because Lacey was quite enthusiastic about the car, but his strengths were not as a test driver and uh, giving feedback, shall we say. So that kind of discredited uh, Capelli. It had a very noisy but not particularly potent V12 engine. Capelli did stick it fifth on the grid in Spain relatively early in the season, which looked like a turning point, but didn't really build on that. Gary Anderson actually has a theory about Capelli from this season, which I've never seen corroborated by Capelli himself, as I'll ask him one day. But obviously, Gary's relevant because Capelli moved to Jordan after, but he references a crash Capelli had in Canada uh, coming through one of the the, the right-left um, sort of quick chicane, hit the concrete wall. His head does appear to hit the wall in that. And Gary has a suspicion that the after-effects of that uh, had an impact on, on Capelli. Just Gary's theory, but he did work with him. So maybe that helps to explain why he never managed to pull things out uh, pull things back with Ferrari but I think already by then the, the season was on a, a pretty bad trajectory he's a class act a nice smooth classical driver Alacy was a bit better at hustling the car and getting the most out of it but it just went badly wrong for, for Capelli and he was out before the end of the year and I think it's a real shame that he always goes down as a, as a Ferrari failure and that big opportunity killed his F1 career and linked perhaps to to that question or certainly to that car Thomas asks, if Michael Andretti had been allowed to talk with Ferrari for 1992, would his F1 career have turned out better than it did? I'll add at this point before Ed comes in that we will do Michael Andretti's 1993 season with McLaren at some point in the future. But I imagine that will be a monster of an episode. So the end of a series when I've just finished all the research isn't isn't the right time for me to think about uh, how much effort that episode would require. So, Ed, reimagine Michael Andretti's F1 career and start it a year earlier at Ferrari. How does it turn out? Well, there's many ways I can reimagine Michael Andretti's F1 career with a more positive outcome because I think he did have the qualities to make it in F1. But I think this one is actually even worse than what did happen. <laughs> Just talked about how dreadful that car was. He'd have had the extra shadow hanging over him of Mario Andretti's history with Ferrari as well, that great day at Monza in uh, 1982 when he got pole for the Italian Grand Prix as a stand-in. I think Michael Andretti absolutely dodged a bullet by not joining Ferrari in in 1992. I suspect it would have gone all a little bit Capelli-esque and I think it would have been a very, very similar story. He'd have probably (laughs) ended up heading back to IndyCar to be great over there and people would rather unfairly mark him down as as an F1 failure. So yeah, that's not an alternative history that I think works out well for him. No, I think if anything, the combination of Andretti's kind of impatience on and off track and the state Ferrari was then, somehow his F1 career would have been even shorter and even more crash-filled in the 92 Ferrari than the 93 McLaren. The, the tantalizing one for me is almost, if that had happened and Andretti had been back in cart for 93, would he have gone straight back to Newman Haas and would Mansell have never made it there? Wow. Yeah, that was just dawning on me as we were, as we were talking that through because Michael has been very clear that 
um, he basically thinks that if he'd stayed in America for 93, that Newman Haas Lola was so good. I think he, he sort of said to his dad before he signed the McLaren contract, he said, I kind of want to stay here because I think we might win every race. And the car, the car was clearly brilliant. So, yeah, what does what does Nigel do in that situation? Because he's still going to fall out with Williams. So does he take a year off, um, like Prost was doing in '92? Does he? I can't. I, I can't imagine. I, I don't know. Does, does someone else pick him up in IndyCar? Is that's we've. Uh, this is a, the beauty of these hypothetical questions. Is we had, end up down amazing rabbit holes that could take up a whole episode on their own. Our next question is from Chris United 93 who I have to say is always brilliantly prolific with the number of questions submitted. And from the many Chris gave us this time, we've chosen this one, which is what if Senna had stayed at McLaren and Schumacher agreed to join him if Ron Dennis's negotiations didn't go so cringeworthy? And that's a reference to a clip we played in our Esteril 93 episode where Ron and Michael were having a chat and Ron became bizarrely patronising and from just listening to it, you could feel how put off Schumacher was by the way he was being spoken to. But let's assume that didn't happen, Matt. What happens if we end up with Senna and Schumacher as McLaren teammates in the early 90s? Oh, well, I think if we're looking at the time scale around those conversations, it would have been for 94. So at that point, Schumacher is coming into his absolute best form, but Senna is already massively aware of him as a problematic rival. They've had that Manucor running already on and off track. Um, and then all the, you know, you could tell Senna was paranoid about Schumacher at that point. That bled into the start of 94 as well, although a lot of that was around what Benetton was doing technically. But OK, it's also kind of rules out this hypothetical happening because there's no way Senna would have let it happen. Um, but had they been in the, <laughs> in the same garage, it would have been it would have made McLaren's 2007 season with Alonso and Hamilton look extremely peaceful. I think I can imagine that level of trying to screw each other over. And um, and it would have been Senna Prost 88, 88, 88, 89 level, I would have thought speed wise. I really wouldn't like to take a bet on who would have been quicker at that point. That could have been extremely close. But I think Schumacher was still showing some naivety in his driving when things got close at that point. And yeah, Adelaide 94 is the best example of that. So Schumacher in the same car as Senna, under all the relentless psychological pressure Senna, with his close relationship with Dennis as well, would have put on. I don't think would have brought the best out of Schumacher. I think Schumacher might have turned out faster on a lot of occasions, but it might have been a one-season partnership that ended up with some enormous controversies and, and Schumacher... Schumacher letting himself down, possibly, in some more Adelaide 94-style moments with his teammate. Um, possibly, uh, yeah, definitely, actually, a, a more Larry hypothetical even than Villeneuve and Montoya at the start of the episode. I think, if anything, Matt's underplayed just how disastrous it would have been there. I think I, I just I just don't <laughs> see it ending well for, for anyone. And I, I suspect that Ron Dennis, Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher, all three of them, would have avoided getting into that situation. I think as well, I, I listened again to that Ron Dennis-Schumacher clip before, before we were recording this episode, and it, it's always easy to forget how how much of a narrative there was around Schumacher going to McLaren at some point through the early 90s because it just kept cropping up as a rumour. But then you listen to that clip with Ron, with Schumacher saying, no, I've got a contract with Benetton. I really think Benetton's coming good. I'm happy. And Ron just going, yes, but come and see me anyway. Come and see me anyway. And it's just like, oh, you can never see these two people working together at all, let alone with Senna thrown in the mix as well. I think the main thing is that if Senna was staying, Senna wouldn't allow it. Ron wouldn't be looking for Michael. Uh, and it, yeah, it would have been totally explosive. I think they'd fallen out 
Uh, Senna and Schumacher had fallen out of Brazil, possibly in 92 or 93. There'd been a run-in at Hockenheim that was either in free practice or a test. Obviously, the Manny Core thing that was all caught on TV. So, as you say, Matt, I think Schumacher was in Senna's head by this point. And being in his garage as well would have just made it a thousand times worse. Ed, the next question is definitely for you. Mike Noon asks, which of the F1 teams that dropped off the grid during the V10 era do you think had the most potential to be a success if they survived? Actually, initially, I was going to go for Onyx for this for obvious reasons. You know, a, a good little team that was just ill-starred in terms of the uh, the ownership and the finances behind it. But then actually, I realised there's a very, very obvious choice beyond that, which is the Leighton House March team. It had Adrian Newey. It had the aerodynamic and car design concepts that were absolutely the ones that made the successful Williams cars of the early 1990s. He was one of the first to realise the potential of CFD in Formula One. There was a nascent active suspension programme. All of those ingredients and ideas were absolutely there. The obvious instability was Akira Kagi, who was the money behind it, got into some trouble and the, and the money dried up. But there was so much there. That team did come close to winning a Grand Prix on merit. So it was sort of a success in this period, but it did vanish ultimately um, on the eve of the 1993 season, just just ran out of money after limping on for a bit. March 881 of 1988, I'd argue most significant car of that season, even ahead of the McLaren Honda MP44 that pretty much won everything. Uh, they had limitations, the, the floor of the wind tunnel, the Southampton University wind tunnel was bowed, which wasn't realised until too late, so that held them back. But it was a it was a fairly small team that never fulfilled its full potential and a lot of those seeds gestated instead at Williams. I think Ed's right that Leighton House was the, was the one of all those teams that was actually going to go somewhere. The, the ones I think had the most potential in a boring way were two classic teams that dropped off during that era, at Ligier in its original form and, uh, and Arrows. You know, I think if they could have found ways to survive, they'd still be saubering along their way now, getting kind of um, quite a few points in the top 10 scoring era. Um, I can imagine a few people might have answered this question with Simtech, but I always think that one's a bit misleading. I think it's much loved because it's purple. And it's also because it, it fell off the grid just after it started to look quite promising in Verstappen's hands in a few of the early 95 races at twistier tracks that kind of suggests massive unfulfilled potential. But looking at designer Nick Worth's later career and how underwhelming that was at, and, and flawed as well at Benetton and, and later Virgin, I, I think Simtech would have been a series of um, nicely coloured technical blind alleys um, finishing 16th. Yeah, I'd go with that. Simtech came to mind for me uh, to begin with, just for what you said there, that uh, actually that car wasn't a total backmarker at the start of 95 before it disappeared. But I think uh, history has probably proven that eventually that wouldn't have worked out. So Matt, the next question is for you, and it's about backmarkers actually. Um, Gil Goodman asks, what are your opinions on the 107% rule? Was it an effective way of keeping the grid competitive or was it unfair to smaller teams? And were there better ways of ensuring everyone was fast enough? No, I've, I've got a fetish for terrible things, generally terrible cars and drivers. But even considering that, I, I really like the 107% rule. Um, I, it's often suggested that it, it killed off the small teams. But I, I don't think that was the case, as really. I think um, if you look at the stats, I think 15 teams dropped out of F1 in the V10 era, even before the 107% rule came in. And those that folded, you know, Simtech and mid 95 Pacific and at the end of 95, they were running out of money anyway. They weren't gonna, they weren't going to last. Um, what the 107% rule did do potentially was put off some potentially sensible future entrants. 
Um, I think the fate of so many teams folding in the early 90s, plus the fact you now had to get relatively close to the pace to be allowed to even race, I, I do feel that had a kind of deterring effect. It certainly, if you if you were Dams, a top Formula 3000 team at the time, trying to get the money together for F1 with a gigantically ugly shoebox of a car at the time, that rule was not going to help your chances. Um, Dome, a very respectable Japanese constructor, couldn't get the money together either. But again, this rule being in place really would have put you off trying a kind of half-funded attempt, unless you were Lola, um, it turned out. Um, Supernova, the other top F3000 team at the time, was talked about as an F1 aspirant, but never really seriously progressed with it. And I, So I do think 107% kind of closed the door a little bit to your kind of Jordan-style leading junior single-seater team who might be able to find the cash, might be able to do something with a customer engine. In terms of the effect it actually had... Um, it's interesting looking back a few years who it would have knocked out if it had been in sooner. And yeah, in in ninety five, the year the year before it came in, Pacific would have made the grid a reasonably respectable number of times. Forty would have only qualified twice, both times with Moreno, once in Canada and, and once in Australia. So it would have kept Pedro Diniz and the forty off the grid for all of ninety five. Which I would, you know, when you when you use that argument, that was definitely a good a good rule to have in place as as kind of unembarrassing as Diniz's later F one career career was. Um, Minardi would have missed the grid a couple of times with Luca Badoa and Arrows with not just Taki Inui, but Max Papias as well would have failed to qualify. And then there were various kind of rain affected ones where you might see dispensation being given. Um, but yeah, it, in when it did come in in 96, 40 still made it on the grid a few times. The, the thing for me that I thought was really important with the rule, when it was announced, was around the same time that Pacific had just brought in Jean-Denis Delatraz to qualify 12 seconds off the pace at Estoril. And I felt it wasn't so much saying small teams don't bother, but saying small teams, if you're going to get a funded driver in to survive, make sure they're remotely competent because things like Delatraz's appearances were just absolutely embarrassing. And Anui falls in that category as well. And sure enough, Minali had to bring in Giovanni Lavaggi, who, you know, at least Delatraz was good in sports cars. I can't think of anything Lavaggi did that was ever any good. Um, Minardi had to bring him in in place of Fisichella for the second half of 96. And, and he he did qualify most of the time but he was 107 percented out a few times as well i think that just showed the rule the rule was working um so yeah i'm a fan and i'm even more a fan i look back at 1989 to look at you know that season with 30 40 car entries to see how it would have hit if it had been in place then and there were cars dropping out in pre-qualifying that were within 107 percent of the eventual pole time albeit in a different session so it wasn't really hitting it wasn't really knocking out teams that deserve to be there Later on, 1990 and 91, when pre-qualifying got more and more hilarious with life and Subaru, Colony and that sort of thing, there were there were teams 111% off the pace all the time. But I, I think it was pitched at the right level, and it um, it did clear out some drivers in particular who shouldn't have been there, even if maybe it did... Um, maybe it just stopped a few really good junior single-seater teams embarrassing themselves in an F1 that got far too expensive. It is it is worth remembering as well, though, that I think the rule was a good one, but it's a bit of a blunt instrument because you might have that 7% leeway. You've got 3% of that might be in having a really poor engine. But then again, if you can only afford the the kind of lowest-end Ford engine, you might well be uh, be struggling. But just for reference, like Jordan in 91, their average deficit was halfway to that 7%. They were basically 3.5% off on average. So uh, it shows how, uh, how difficult it is to be precise with that. But it was probably for the better, I would say, because not that many people have fallen foul of it. And if you, 7% is a big enough leeway, particularly once you've got uh, an okay engine package. Yeah, I think the thing that started killing off teams was just that F1 had grown so much in the first half of the 90s and the front running teams 
just became monst monsters. Obviously, they're tiny compared to today, but it was over the course of the 90s that that massive expansion started. So that just exposed anyone trying to do it on a shoestring at the back of the grid. So even without that, as Matt said, they'd have probably all fallen off the grid anyway, eventually, because they ran out of cash. Ed, let's move from the back of the field to the front. Uh, Liam asks, why did Benetton leave it so late in 1994 to put a driver capable of helping their Constructors' Championship bid, so that's Johnny Herbert, into the car, considering uh, it was there for the taking for most of the season and JJ Leto and Jos Verstappen had proved not up to the job alongside Michael Schumacher? It was partly circumstances. JJ Leto was a, a pretty sound signing, but he broke his neck in that testing crash pre-season. And Jos Verstappen was, was the raw rookie. He was signed to be test driver off the back of that legendary footwork test that got him on the cover of Autosport magazine. It's the next big thing. And then Verstappen subbed for the first couple of races. Leto pushed himself to come back too early. He later admitted that he wasn't ready to come back, but because it was his big chance, he felt he had to. So he got ditched after a, a short run of races. And by this point, you're kind of halfway through the season because Verstappen then gets a bit of a run and it's clear he can't get close to, to Schumacher. So I feel like it was, a, it was a problem they only realised was a problem when it was too late. And it was probably a problem that arose down to the fact that Leto had that, uh, had that crash. But that second car contributed a grand total of, I think, 10 points that year, which is just rubbish. And that's why Williams won the Constructors' Championship. But I think it wasn't for want of, uh, for want of trying. You also have to bear in mind that it was a car that was absolutely built around what Schumacher could deal with. You know, people talk about cars being designed for certain drivers. What it actually was was that the driver decides where there's a dynamic limitation and, and Schumacher could cope with a car that was quick but tricky to drive. You've got a little bit of this with Max Verstappen today. Quite a quite a pointy car, the, the Benetton. Herbert certainly found it quite alarming when he jumped into it because it was kind of the, the centre of rotation was somewhere out a metre in front of the car, uh, I think he put it. So... It would have been extremely difficult to find a driver who could get close to Schumacher as well. So it was a combination of those things, a bit of bad luck, circumstances, Schumacher's brilliance, and the fact that Flavio Briatore was never a great champion or prioritizer of the second car, as, uh, as Johnny Herbert was to discover the following season. I don't necessarily think it was a massive failing on, on the part of the team, though, and it just showed how, how strong Schumacher was. They could probably try it a bit harder, but I, I don't think it was uh, entirely a, a team problem. I think as well, it's it's in the it's in light of their previous efforts to find the right sort of teammate for Schumacher, not really working out. You know, Martin Brundle in '92, they realised in retrospect had done a much better job than than they thought at the time because Schumacher was was coming on so strong, and they and in retrospect they wish they'd kept him. Of course, they couldn't. They could have grabbed him in mid '94 if he'd really fallen out with McLaren and Porsche, and they put Alio in the car or something instead. But he wasn't available. Signing a massively experienced race winner in Patrese didn't work out in '93. So actually. Pre-broken neck, Leto, based on his um, Scuderia Italia and Sauber exploits, would have been a, a really sensible signing. Verstappen was this exciting young talent. There wasn't really anybody else kicking around out of contract who they could have grabbed until the, the Lotus situation unfolded. So, yeah, I think on paper, actually, Leto, Verstappen and Herbert were all three very capable F1 drivers um, and potential race winners. And a team that was still working out how to pair anybody with Schumacher did, did a relatively good job job in trying to find the right people for a constructive championship bid that season, but was just kind of defeated by circumstances and, and injury. Yeah, I think the key point there is actually who was on the market at the time. And as you say, Herbert only became available, as we discussed in our Lotus 94 episode with him, when Lotus realised it was in huge trouble and Johnny's contract was one of the few assets it had 
that was worth any money. But Matt, Rachel Fleming asks our next question, and it's uh, if if Mika Hakkinen continued his first half 1997 form into the rest of the season, could he seriously have been dropped by McLaren? No. I've got a longer answer, but that's my oh, that was my gut. <laughs> the, the the strength of the Hackenden Ron Dennis relationship was is one factor. I think that was that Hackenden had a lot of credit at McLaren, um, both raw talent wise and after his near death experience in Adelaide at the end ninety five, and also his form in the early ninety seven wasn't that bad. Now, you know, Rachel is absolutely right. That is a that is a period when Coulthard was certainly McLaren's leading light. One in Melbourne should have won it. One in Montreal as well. There were some quite big qualifying deficits um, on Hackenden's side in that part of the season, which is is unusual, really. Um, but uh, as we discussed on, on Bring Back V10s before, Coulthard was very good at peaking when McLaren wasn't a championship or, or even race-winning prospect. And Hackenden was always waiting in the wings with this devastating speed when the car was was good enough to get the job done. And as McLaren and Mercedes came good even more in the middle of 97, Hackenden went on this devastatingly fast run that should have brought multiple race wins without technical failures and really set himself up for the titles that followed. Um and I think, you know, McLaren had all the data about what Hackenden was capable of and, and had the understanding um, that if he pulled it together, um, he w- he was going to be absolutely sensational. I think the, the other way I look at this is, okay, first half of 97, he was being beaten by Coulthard, was a bit lackluster on a few occasions. He managed to get kept even after taking out half the field at Hockenheim in 94 and um, being banned for a race. And there was some there were some bad errors in 95 as well, throwing away a really good shot at winning at Spa with an early spin. He got through his error-prone time he got through being outpaced by Coulthard you know I, I don't think early 97 was gonna was gonna make much difference to him even though it was a bit underwhelming and I think even if they were seriously considering it he probably came good quick enough to stabilize the situation given there weren't that many obvious alternatives I guess Silverstone you could probably say was a turning point where of course he, he, he was close to winning before he had the the engine failure so I think he just steadied the ship even if that train of thought was gestating in, in the mind of Ron Dennis I was at that British Grand Prix uh, it was a brilliant, brilliant uh, stint of Villeneuve and Hakkinen going at it. And uh, I think in the grandstand I was sat in at Luffield, I was the only person cheering for Villeneuve. Everybody was desperate for Hakkinen to get his first win. Ed, the, the next question is so far up your street. I'm actually wondering if Xenon Entity is a secret email account of yours. The question is, I always had a curiosity regarding Luca Badoa and his career because his reputation is overshadowed by his 2009 stint with Ferrari. Was he really a bad driver or a good driver in backmarker cars? Yeah, you've, you've almost uh, exposed my identity as someone who has many alter egos named after noble gases. But uh, yeah, <laughs> he was a good driver in backmarker cars, certainly. Badoa had genuine ability. He won a 3000 his rookie season. He went on a massive tear through the back end of the season and won that. Came in with the uh, Scuderia Italia Lola in 93. Hopes were quite high, but of course it was an awful car and he was driving for that team for Minardi for 40 Corsa so he didn't have a great opportunity of course he had that uh, that terrible uh, lost fourth place in the the Nürburgring in 1999 when he had the gearbox failure uh, late on so yeah he he had his moments but I don't think he had like the all-round application to have been a superstar or anything but I think there was the ability to have a good career there and not be remembered partly as the guy who's got the most starts without a point, 50 he, he notched up. And then, of course, for that return with Ferrari in 2009, which was uh, was a bit of a disaster. You don't get to be 
a key Ferrari test driver for over a decade without being a very, very good driver. But of course, the fact that they knew everything about him, they knew how good he was, tells you that he wasn't seen as a as a kind of top line driver by them. And, and, and that 2009 return, it was a sad one. He hadn't he hadn't raced an F1 for 10 years. In fact, I don't think he'd raced for 10 years. He was just a a, a test driver. Michael Schumacher was originally going to sub in for Felipe Massa. Badoa was then was then dropped in when it was apparent Schumacher wasn't able to because his, his neck wasn't really in the in the right condition. Came in at Valencia and he just struggled. I think he was 2.6 seconds off Kimi Raikkonen in Q1 in, in Valencia and then 1.7 seconds slower at Spa and had a, had a shunt during Q1. But I remember speaking to him after that race in Valencia and it, he was... He was just irritated that he had no chance to test before it because of the testing ban. And I think he's he was quite bitter about the fact, ultimately, that he was seen as a bit of a laughing stock. He blamed the media coverage for him being booted out of the team after two races and uh, Fisichella coming in. And, of course, Fisichella didn't score points. So, yeah, Badoa got to be a Ferrari race driver, had 50 starts in F1, pretty good. Could have done better in F1, certainly could have been a point scorer and had a, had a few big results. And I would say, yeah, uh, deserves to be remembered as as a good F1 driver who didn't get the right chances rather than as some kind of incompetent idiot, which he certainly wasn't. I've actually got a uh, 143 scale model of Luca Badoa's 1995 Minardi on my desk at the moment, which was a, a present from my colleague Jack Benyon because uh, uh, my, my son was born a couple of weeks ago and his name is Luca. So Benyon sent me a, a Luca Badoa model as a, as, as a, as a, a basically a, a baby present. And his message with it was, uh, make sure your son, Luke, has a better career than Luca Badoa has in whatever he chooses to do. And I was like, yep, yeah, <laughs> definitely good advice. But I think the advice I'll, get, I'll be giving um, Luca Beer is just bear in mind how what, what a good bit of career longevity Luca Badoa had with the Ferrari F1 team. Out of all those drivers who raced rubbish F1 cars in the mid to late 90s, Badoa was still earning a good wage, I'm sure, heavily involved in, F- in the championship-winning F1 team for a long time. He's got a Formula 3000 title to his name. Some of his Minardi drives were actually really wasted opportunities on his side as well, but he had some good moments for Minardi too. So uh, I think the, <laughs> the advice I'd give Luca Beer is um, if you get a late career opportunity to do something really unprepared, don't take it. It might detract from everything else you've done that was actually quite good. I think you've also got the advantage that uh, Luca Beer doesn't translate quite as amusingly as Luca Badoa into the name he was being called in 2009, which he, the joke was he wasn't Luca Badoa. He's look how bad you are. So uh, that doesn't quite work with uh, with Luca Beer, but that's that's the nickname that always sticks in my mind. What a brilliant detour this conversation has taken. Firstly, welcome to the world, Matt's son, Luca. Um, the thing... For, with Badoa and Ferrari, for me, is that if Ferrari thought he was potentially good in his prime, they'd have put him in the car in 99 when Schumacher broke his leg. Jean Tot said it was about not disrupting Minardi and not wanting to upset Minardi. Ferrari didn't care about Minardi deep down. If Badoa was the man for the job, they'd have put him in instead of Mikasalo. So I agree he's not as bad as he's remembered uh, because of that two-race stint. But, uh, yeah, I don't think we lost uh, a superstar just through him not getting the opportunities. Uh, You can both answer this next one from Alex Holland Martin, who asks, how would you guys go about resolving the Indy 2005 Grand Prix and not let the race have six cars start? Should the FIA have put a chicane in? And Matt, you can go first on that one. Yes. um, Short answer again. Uh, Ultimately, 
there was a there was an unsafe element involving the tires and the track. You can't remake all the tires overnight. When particularly when you're in America and you, you're a French company, you can change the track layout enough to do that. And there were all kinds of obstacles in the way, rules wise, and more more importantly, stubbornness wise. But it, it you know it, it could have been done and it should have been done. Now they should have, if they'd done that, made sure there was enough of a penalty for the Michelin cars that it wasn't a Michelin victory. Still, it still should have been. You know, Bridgestone made a safe product. Really, the the, the end result was the right one, and whatever penalty was applied or not allowing Michelin cars to score or something so that it was still a kind of Bridgestone dominated race. In retrospect, that would have looked faster than ludicrous and been one of F1's lowest ebbs, but still a much higher ebb than six cars starting the race with a massive gap from the Ferraris up front to the Jordans and Minardis at the back. It would have been less embarrassing. It would have been a spectacle on day. Um, when, when I thought about this question, my, my, other, my first thought was I don't think F1 would allow this to happen now in this kind of less sort of stubborn, entrenched, Mosley Ecclestone era, this kind of Ross Braun led, more open minded era. They'd have found a way to make a product work on the day. And if it had to be tidied up later, so be it. And then I thought of the 2021 Belgian Grand Prix and realized, no, it actually still, it still could have done. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where there, there were plenty of solutions. The, the temporary chicane seemed the most elegant. They could have done it had the, the Bridgestone teams agreed to it. There were mechanisms that would have allowed them to do it. That's certainly better than they did talk about having like a speed limit for the Michelin cars through the banking and kind of a two-lane system, which I'm not a great uh, fan of. But in order for that solution to happen, you have to kind of have the initial position that, you have to find a solution. And I think the, the Bridgestone teams in particular just didn't get into that mindset. And then it just ran away with it. And then this was basically the day F1 ate itself, wasn't it? Because there wasn't that that number one thing, which is right, we have to make this work and we have to commit to finding a way to make this work rather than playing politics, which is why I think it stands as a, a cautionary tale. And I think F1 has, has never got itself into quite such a stupid position uh, again. So for me, yeah, there were there were solutions as Matt pointed out, some of them might have seemed a little bit silly, but you could have had something that was a race, albeit a compromised race, and it would have been better than what we did have, which stands, yeah, as that that cautionary tale to this day. So, yeah, hopefully F1 will never get back to uh, USA 2005 ever again. Yeah, well said. And for anyone listening to this who hasn't listened to our entire back catalogue, make sure you go and check out an extensive episode we did about Indy 2005. We spoke to various people who were involved and, uh, and put a lot of meat on the bones of that dreadful day in F1 history. Our next question comes from Stephen Gate, who asks, could Jean Alesi and the Tyrrell 019 have won races in 1990 if the car had stayed on Goodyear's? And would Alesi have won races in the Honda-powered 020 in 1991 if he had stayed with the team? So, Matt, what do you reckon? Sadly, no, as, as lovely as an idea as it is. The switch to Pirelli for 1990 was was basically uh, designer Harvey Postlethwaite's uh, um, suggestion on the grounds that Goodyear wasn't favouring Tyrrell, wasn't giving it enough data about the tyres and their profile for him to design the car competitively. Um, and it was it was forcing him into too much guesswork and Pirelli was going to was going to prioritise Tyrrell more. So it it was the better option from that side. Now, yeah, the Goodyear was a better tyre than the Pirelli, definitely. Um but if 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 they couldn't have made the car work with the Goodyear, would it have exploited so much potential in its good days? Probably not, and not enough to make a difference in the races that Alacy could have won, but um, but didn't. Um, thinking about Alacy's nineteen ninety high points, the uh, the Phoenix one was definitely Pirelli assisted as well, given how good the tire was around that um, terrible but fun circuit. 
he was very good in Monaco as well. Uh, I I think that was more a Lacey than Pirelli, even though there were other Pirelli cars qualified very well on the street on the on the other street circuit. A Lacey was the fastest of the Pirellis by one point four seconds in qualifying. So maybe um, a Lacey, Tyrrell, and Goodyear uh, around Monaco actually might have won. Um, but I, no, I, I I think that team moved to Pirelli for a very specific reason. It wasn't just as simple as going to a worse tire. It it probably did better on Pirellis than it would have done. Kind of floundering in the dark with with a Goodyear that wasn't taking it seriously. Um, the nineteen ninety one question is really interesting, and and I went back to the Monaco performance again. Um, Tyrrell's resources limitations were more apparent by that time as well. Even with even with a Honda engine, it was starting to it couldn't pull off the same sort of underdog stuff it had the year before. Stefano Modena was the lead driver rather than Lacey. Alacy was a better driver than Modena. Was Alacy enough of a better driver to get Tyrrell to the front at the couple of races where Modena had a had a real chance? I mean, Modena was Modena was thirteen seconds behind Senna when he when his car broke um, in Monaco, where he qualified second. Lacey might have been a lot close to Senna's tail, but I can't see him out qualifying Senna, taking that pole and, and leading that race throughout. And then Canada was the other one where Modena was second behind PK when Mansell threw the race away. There was half a minute difference between them at the end of that race, and I don't think Lacey would have made that difference necessarily. So, yeah, Tyrrell would have done better with Lacey in '91. Would have been some more '89, '90 style heroics, but I, yeah, I, that that was never going to be a winning combination. I don't think. It's also worth reminding everyone that the '91. Tyrrell Honda that was the the old Honda V10 rather than the V12 they had a, a Mugen serviced it so it it wasn't although it was a works deal it wasn't a parity with the uh with, with the V12s in the in the McLaren so it's not quite as, as exciting a prospect although it was a good engine still not quite as exciting a prospect as it sounds like on paper yeah I think in both of those scenarios uh the engine would probably let the combination down the 1990 car was even if it's on good years it's still underpowered um and yeah as ed explained there in um the old honda engine they had in 91 the power was okay but it was heavy so i think it would have still been a disadvantage to the team ed you're gonna like this next question from alex neil who says i've seldom heard sauber mentioned in the podcast considering they were a mainstay as an independent team for most of the v10 era i always thought they never reached the potential of their sports car success in the late 80s considering they had race winners and world champions. And Alex mentioned Jacques Villeneuve at that point and a Ferrari engine deal for a good while. So why did they not get a race win until after the V10 era? And Alex, I've absolutely seen what you've done there by playing the Villeneuve card and it has worked. So Ed, you've got a chance to talk about Sauber, which you must be delighted about. Yeah, Alex has slightly shown me up there with that question because I've not talked about Sauber anywhere near enough uh, on Bring Back v and. Yeah, considering how successful those Sauber Group C cars were, it's hard to argue with with the idea that they didn't perhaps live up to their their potential in this period. The team did have a couple of years with works Ford engines after Benetton ditched that to to go to Renault, but it it was pretty much an interim one. And and I don't think Sauber, decent as it was at that time, was quite ready to be a, a great manufacturer team. And then as a customer team for a long time, they had the Ferrari engines, which cost a hell of a lot of money. You know, when you're shelling out 20-odd million a season for, for engines, that's a big hole in your budget. And they were a big chunk behind the works units as, as well. But what I always liked about Peter Sauber is he was endlessly pragmatic. He'd built up that team from nothing. It, you know, the, the, the town of Hinville basically built up around the, uh, uh, around the Sauber F1 team. So very, very uh, important. He was never willing to mortgage its future on a, on a flight of fancy. 
and he did spend well when he could. So when Kimi Raikkonen was effectively sold to, to McLaren, which we've talked about before and bring back V10s, that money was invested in a state-of-the-art wind tunnel, all with a view to being ready to be a manufacturer team, which indeed it was when BMW came in. So I actually think Sauber's miracle was being a team that started and survived at a time when F1 new teams mostly failed. It's basically Sauber and Jordan that managed to make it work in, in, in that period. And those two teams still exist today, albeit under different ownership. So I actually see Sauber in 1993 through to the sale to BMW as actually a tremendous success rather than underachiever, given the circumstances that they were in. And you know, we talk about Jordan's great start. Sauber's start in 93 was incredible. Fourth and fifth they ran at the end of their first lap in Formula One. Absolutely astonishing achievement. I think that's part of the problem in terms of perceptions of Sauber, though, because that 93 start was so good. And there was all that momentum that Sauber would become Mercedes in, in Formula One, as it was um, you know, Mercedes as the works team didn't exist for decades and a half later. But Sauber did get outmaneuvered around that time as well. And it ended up being a works team for Ford eventually instead at not Ford's finest hour. Um, it, lo- it lost sponsorship in a fairly significant way around 94 as well with the deal that, came, that fell apart. So it, um, like Ed says, it, w- it was successful. I think it gets underrated because Peter Sauber wasn't as flamboyant as Eddie Jordan. And I, I do see Sauber and Jordan as a kind of pair through that era. And okay, Jordan did have the race wins. Um, I had a theory. Sometimes I bring back V10s, I kind of revisit my 16, 17-year-old um, teenage theories. And one of my, f- at the time, I was absolutely convinced that Johnny Herbert deserved to win multiple races in 1997 um, based on pretty much based off where he qualified in Melbourne, being taken out by Irvine that he'd been quick in the warm-up that day. I revisited that theory this morning, and it was absolute nonsense. There's no way he was going to win any races <laughs> that year. There is actually, you alluded to, to it there, an alternative history where Sauber does become properly the works Mercedes team. It sort of was in 94, really. They did have Mercedes engines, and it has the Mercedes works status, and it has Michael Schumacher, because, of course, there was a very long saga about Michael Schumacher driving there, so maybe that would have been a bit, a little bit different. But <laughs> it's interesting you pairing Eddie Jordan and, and Peter Sauber there. It's, it's a good point. The two bosses of the two teams were absolute polar opposites, weren't they, in terms of their outlook, and perhaps that tells you about the kind of extreme character you need to be to make a team in this era work in that you need to be either the absolute arch pragmatist or Eddie Jordan who was just this sort of mercurial controlled lunacy who managed to make the team work when 99.999% of people would never have been able to do it so both geniuses in their in their own way. This question made me think of um, I think it must have been the final race of 2005 and Martin Brundle was asked about the fact that Sauber the Sauber name was disappearing because um bmw were taking it over and um i think it was probably james allen who said to him oh martin it's, it's a shame to see sauber go isn't it and brundle was really dismissive if i remember this correctly just going well they've been around for a long time they've been well funded um they've had decent sponsors pretty good engines and pretty good drivers and they've just been a midfield team all the time so um no i'm not that sad to see them go which was uh flat out from martin let's move on to the next question then from sean donnelly who asks, uh, what was the worst Grand Prix of the V10 era? And we're going to combine this question with one from Brondudo, who asks, what were the best and worst seasons of the V10 era? So you guys can both have a swing at this. And Matt, you can go first. 
I think this is a bit of a boring, obvious answer, but I'm going to go with Spanish Grand Prix 99 for the worst. There was a series of Spanish Grand Prix in the V10 era where the fastest car ran one, two, nothing stuck in the memory whatsoever. They tested too much at the circuit. It didn't encourage overtaking. It was just pointless. There were some good races in Spain too that get overlooked as a result, but normally you could kind of set your watch by mid-May Spain. People complain F1's got too boring. There's no overtaking. Something needs to change. And yeah, I, I agree. Or did at that time anyway. Uh, the best worst seasons I found much harder. I think instinctively worst season probably 2004 for the just predictability of the Ferrari dominance. Um, but BAR emerging as their nearest challenger was quite interesting. There were there were some, there were some little quirks that semi saved it. I think. Um, I'd, I'd never go at 92 as the worst season as well. But I don't know if that's just because I really dislike Nigel Mansell possibly. It was a you know a not not a competitive season by any means, but you know still had a lot of subplots in it. Um, but I'm going to settle on 2002 for the worst season. Okay, despite Montoya and Williams's best efforts to make that good, it wasn't just that Ferrari was dominant and it was kind of crushing the hope out of everything. It was it was the way Ferrari was just kind of mocking F1 with not just with the team orders in Austria, but the the nonsense uh, Indianapolis as well with the sort of contrived photo finish that ended up just ah just taking a record for the closest finish with the most insulting in the most insulting way just f1 just making a mock f1 being made to look stupid by ferrari so i think 2002 is the worst the best um i'm going to please glenn by going for 1997 Three. not for Villeneuve reasons but the sheer competitiveness nearly every team got on the podium that season the tire wall was thrusting people up and down the grid and Sometimes too much randomness can spoil a season. You, you want a narrative to hold on to as well. But it had that. It had Villeneuve versus Schumacher up front. It had almost every team having a chance of glory along the way. And your only complaint maybe might have been that Schumacher and Villeneuve didn't race each other on track enough. You get to Hareth and, and they, you know, that's where they put that right, well and truly. So, yeah, 97 had everything. Um, so regardless of who won the championship, I think that's my favourite season, maybe maybe ever. Fortunately, I have a slightly different set of answers, so I'm not just going to repeat uh, what Matt said. For, for the worst Grand Prix, I'm actually going with a slightly personal choice, which is the 1996 French Grand Prix, which actually was the first Grand Prix I went to as a fan in, in person. So it does have a, a special place for me. Michael Schumacher's pole sitting Ferrari blowing up in front of me on the formation lap took the sting out of the race at the time. I thought it was great as a Damon Hill fan, but in retrospect, I was a complete idiot because it, it just <laughs> eliminated all the excitement <laughs> from the race. And then we had this formation flying, basically, Hill and Villeneuve for Williams, Lacey and Berger for Benetton, Hacken and Coulthard for McLaren. I also learned an important lesson from that one because I think the famous Nigel Roebuck line on it in Autosport was something like a bit of a dull one, this, which I was quite unhappy with because I'd been there and it had been a special race for me. So I've tried to remember that as a journalist that uh, every Grand Prix is special in its in its way and uh, you've got to you've got to respect that. So that's the worst Grand Prix. Worst season, I'm going with the one Matt almost went for, which is 2004, because it was just one of those ones where. There were quite a lot of fairly flat refueling races that were dictated by what fuel everyone was starting on and then just sorting themselves out into order. I watched a 2004 British Grand Prix um, at some point in the past year or so in full just to see what it was like, and it was really, really flat. So that, that one didn't really excite me. And every time BAR looked like they might be able to win, Ferrari just found a load more pace, Monza being perhaps the classic example where we thought, oh, Button could win this one just for some variety. But it's uh, it didn't happen. The best season, again, I'm going a little bit personal. I'm going 1993, which is obviously not objectively the best season of this era. But it was the season when I, I'd have been 13 that year, when I was following it 
in a way in a depth that was kind of at a new level if you say because obviously you'd followed it and watched it all before but in 93 I guess I'm just at the right age to just consume absolutely everything about that season so it's quite a special year but there are a lot of good things about it easy championship for Prost but you've got the rise of Schumacher you've got some great races that year Portugal 93 which is a race we've done an episode I think about before on on Bring Back V10s because I like to talk about it so there's a lot of storylines in there and the arrival of Sauber so yeah, 93 for me. So a couple of slightly personal choices in there rather than completely objective ones. I like that. Yeah. Um, not utterly predictable all the way through. I think Matt is absolutely right about Spain 99. I will take issue with the declaration that nothing of note happened in that race because Jacques Villeneuve ran third in the first stint and uh, held up the Ferraris and actually contributed to how bad that race was because by the time the Ferraris jumped him, they were miles behind the McLarens. Um Best season for me, when this question came in, I declared that I couldn't say 97. Matt's outlined why it was brilliant, um, but I can't choose it. For me, it's either 2003 or 2005. And I think that's because they sit either side of the two worst seasons, which were 02 and 04. So they were such a breath of fresh air. They both had um, big rule changes to, to shake things up, which worked uh, obviously, Schumacher still won the championship in 2003. It didn't break his dominance, but it's a great close season. You had the emergence of of talents like Alonso, Kimi Raikkonen fighting for a championship for the first time. Team's performance fluctuated. We had, whether you liked it or not, we had one-shot qualifying and the refueling. Uh, well, you have to qualify with your race start fuel load, which started to mix up the grid, so that made it interesting. And 2005, I think it was just great after so many years of the same team winning. It's always good to have someone else do it. And Fernando Alonso was a superstar at that time. So to see him and that brilliant looking Renault R25 come good. And and the the mixed up races that we got because of the fact that the McLaren was, was fast but unreliable and that nobody could change tyres. So you had uh, cars, pace would fluctuate through a race depending on how they'd managed their tyres. Um, so yeah, my best and worst seasons are all wrapped up there really in, in the early part of the 2000s and Matt's got his hand up so he must have chosen another option for each of the other questions I reckon oh you nearly you, you actually nearly made me change my worst back to 2004 after all because it just made me realize how much a season is shaped by what happens in the one before and 2004 felt so much more insultingly terrible because 2003 had been so good and the same reason I hate 1998 even though objectively it was a great championship battle it wasn't 97 there are any two teams in contention <laughs> awful the only thing that saves 2002 at all for me is that that was the year in the UK we had Bernie's super duper F1 digital service was available. So the races were rubbish. But if you had the, the Bernie service, there was a, there was an A and a B feed. The A feed sort of was the main one that you would see if you were just watching the broadcast um, as normal, although it was better than the terrestrial TV broadcast. But there was a B feed that followed the midfield the whole time. So whenever the race was terrible, once Montoya had been jumped, either at the first pit stops or at the start, having probably started on pole, you just went and watched the B feed, saw what was going on in the midfield. You had an onboards channel, um, all sorts of stuff that could keep you entertained, which kind of disguised, if you were watching it, could disguise how bad that season was. But we spent plenty of time on that brilliant set of questions. Uh, let's move on to a question from Paul Lucas, who asks, which car was the best overall in 1991 out of the McLaren and the Williams? And Ed, before you come in on this, 
Paul says that, uh, of course, Senna finished ahead of Mansell, but the order was reversed between their evenly matched teammates, Gerhard Berger and Ricardo Patrese. Yeah, best is a, is a tricky word. The, the Williams FW14 at its best was the quicker car, although the McLaren got more pole positions and it was still getting poles right at the end of the season. The FW14 was certainly the more innovative car, aerodynamically and technically, but yeah, less reliable. So overall, do you want the car that can be faster or the one that's going to get you to the end more reliably and, and is well understood? So for 1991, it's clear that the McLaren was the better car. If you were going to be presented with a choice of those two cars for that year, you'd have to choose the, uh, the, the McLaren. But the FW14 was the more significant car. And if you look at it in the wider context, obviously the 91 McLaren Honda was kind of the end of the line almost for the, 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 the dominance of the McLaren era. And the 1991 Williams was the start of the line for that amazing one in the 90s. So the baton was being handed over. So for that reason, you can also argue the FW14 was better, especially as Mansell went quite close to the title. And I think if Senna wasn't in the McLaren, then it was uh, a second burger in there, obviously. It probably would have been different. So... That sounds like a slightly fence-sitting answer, but yeah, better for that year, for that championship, yeah, take the McLaren, but better in the wider context, the Williams. So it's both. Everyone's a winner. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll chip in on that as well while Ed picks all the splinters out of his uh, lower half uh, from all that fence-sitting. I think um, what happened next, which Ed alluded to, perhaps frames how we view these these two cars, particularly because... The 92 Williams, the FW14B, was just an evolution of that 91 car. And, as we'll come to in an episode one day in the future, I'm sure, was only meant to be an interim car for the start of 92. And then it was so dominant, they decided to delay the FW15 by a year. Um, but our former colleague at Autosport, Kevin Turner, kind of enlightened me on this one a couple of years ago when he pointed out that McLaren did put a pretty significant update on that 91 car towards the end of the year, which actually pulled back a lot of the pace that Williams had found. So I think in the end, because it won the championship and it, it got the job done, it, it was out the blocks brilliantly at the start of the year while the Williams was troubled, which we've explained in our Canada 91 episode. And because McLaren were able to fight back at the end of the year when the Williams had come good, I think you have to say the McLaren. Let's go on to our next question, uh, which is from Jack Clark who asks, why did front-running drivers of the late turbo era, such as Stefan Johansson and Michele Alboreto, struggle to find competitive drives when the V10 era began? What do you reckon, Ed? Yeah, I think the reality is they were both fading a little bit as the turbo era was coming to an end anyway. Johansson's big years were 85 to 87 with Ferrari and McLaren, and he did a decent job there, but he wasn't in the Alan Prost level or even the Michele Alberto level for that matter. Perhaps he was a little bit unfortunate not to pick up a, a slightly better midfield drive in the V10 era. Ended up marking time with Onyx and AGS and footwork. But I think any momentum he had was killed by that Ligier season in 1988, which was not a good Ligier season. Uh, that was the last year of the turbo era. Uh, of course, Alberto, there's similar things, really. He was on the wane. Ferrari dropped him for 89, went to Tyrrell. Spent a bit of time on LaRue's footwork, Scuderia Italia in, in Minardi. Had that footwork season in 92 where he kept finishing seventh, where he was quite well celebrated. That was that was seen as a bit of a revival for him. But yeah, 
he was kind of on, on the slide. Interestingly, and actually you can connect this to an earlier question about Benetton in 94, because Alboreto did push quite hard for that Benetton drive in 94 with some fairly chunky backing for the seat. And, and who knows, maybe he just solved the problems for Benetton if they'd, uh, they'd gone for it, but he ended up with Minardi instead. But certainly by that stage, when you're talking about what a 37-year-old driver whose last win was not far off a decade uh, before that, very much seen as a man of the past. So I think both Johansson and Alboreto were, were kind of slightly men of the past once that, that V10 era had started. Not that they couldn't do decent jobs, but that their big chances were in the turbo era. They weren't the absolute best drivers of the, of the turbo era, and that was probably reflected in their slide into relative obscurity. I think that's it. Their, their best chances had shown them to not be quite good enough. Uh, you know, uh, Johansson hadn't shone against Prost at McLaren. Albert had come off second best to Berger at Ferrari overall at the time and their time together. I think another big factor, though, later in the V10 era, they would have ended up having to go to smaller teams because big teams would have seen them as having been proven to be not quite good enough. And I think Johansson was one of the drivers in the mix for the uh, for the Jordan vacancy after Gasho's incident that went to Schumacher. And the big problem was that he wanted paying. And that was another thing as well. A lot of those teams were making do on very little. They needed their drivers to either bring money or be young drivers who just did not care about being paid at that point. Um, our colleague Gary Anderson often talks about how he'd always rather have a young charger in a car than in, in a, for a small team than a driver who's seen it all before. And I think a lot of the small teams felt like that as well. Um, Alberetta did have personal backing via, I think, was it was it Marlborough? Or uh, I, always, I always get confused which end of being kicked out for a Lacey he was on. But, um, it was Marlborough first. Yes, that was it. Um, so he did, he did have backing, which I don't think Johansson had for a lot of that time. But ultimately, they've been proven to not be absolute top-ranked drivers. They were likely to be more expensive than younger options and probably not as motivated. Yeah, I think um, Alberto probably left some points and some, some results on the table, falling out with Tyrrell so early in 89. I, I, can't imagine, I can't imagine if he'd still been there for 90. His peaks would have been as high as Jean Alessi's, but he could have driven a couple of decent cars for longer there but ultimately as the guys have explained i think we'd seen we'd seen the level these two were at by this point so that's probably the main reason that the big teams weren't looking at them by the time the turbo era came to an end so we're on to the final question of the episode and therefore the series um it's perhaps the most important question we've ever uh, answered on bring back v10s it comes from chris who says uh, simply, what was your favourite crash helmet of the era? I'm assuming Chris means design rather than manufacturer, although personally I've always been a fan of Arai helmets. So, Ed, you can go first. Favourite crash helmet design of this era? Yep, I also used to use Arai helmets, so uh, I'm with you on that one. There's many. The one that leaps to mind, probably because I was a Damon Hill fan, is, is his helmet with the colours of the London Rowing Club with the, the, those white stripes on the, the very, 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 very dark blue. But that was his father Graham's uh, livery uh, helmet design, so I'm not quite counting that as an original. I could have chosen dozens of helmets. Uh, basically, every time I thought of one, I thought, oh, yeah, that one's great, that one's great. I think it was a peak era for helmet designs, actually, because they were complex enough to be interesting, but not the layered works of art we see today, which are brilliant in their own way, but they don't work in the same way in the cockpit, partly because you can't see them as well, and partly because they are so complicated. You need to sort of stand in front of them and marvel at them for uh, for kind of a few minutes to see the detail. So I could have chosen 80% of them. I'm going to pick out one that I felt was really distinctive. So I'm going to go for Alex Cathy 
perhaps unexpectedly. I'm aware that design won't leap to mind for many people. Uh, it's it's a red base colour with a, with a gold band around the lower part, and then there's kind of a gold cross uh, on the top. Not very easy to communicate that on a, on a podcast, but I have put a picture of Alex Caffey in a footwork as my Twitter header pick, where you can see that helmet quite clearly. So if you go to our Edgedraw F1 and click on the profile, you can have a look at it there. So yeah, a slightly left-field Caffey from me to finish the season. I'm going a bit more boring and a little bit too crowd-pleasing for the people on this podcast, or at least one of them. Um, Jacques Villeneuve, simple, elegant, distinctive, slightly pink. Don't think you can ask for more from a helmet. Yeah, again, it'd be too easy for me to choose that. Um, brilliant colours, distinctive design. Um, and yeah, you don't you don't have to be a fanboy to appreciate it. But Ed's absolutely right. that There's so many in this era, and it's the simplicity of them that work. So... Obviously, you had an iconic one like Ayrton Senna's design, instantly recognisable. But then you have something like Gerhard Berger's, which was really clear. Dark colours, but a big fat Austrian flag on the side. Mika Hakkinen's simple sort of Finnish colour palette stripes on the side was great. David Coulthard's um, Scottish Saltire helmet, brilliant, distinctive. Um, Heinzeld Frentzen's navy one with the German stripes down it. Michael Schumacher's original design, which we've recently seen Mick race with. Um, in 2021 this this was a great era for helmet designs and I remember during this time helmet designs were talked about a lot and it was often said that F1 drivers had brilliant clear bold designs and and motorcycle racing um, was criticized for the helmet designs being too busy and too flashy and too many colors and F1's gone that way now as Ed said the skill required from the people painting the helmets to put these designs together it's fantastic, but if you take off the stickers or the driver numbers with a lot of them today, it's very hard to identify a lot of them, uh, which which driver they could be because the patterns are just are so busy and all over the place. So that's a great question that sums up just another thing that made the Bring Back V10s era so great. So thank you for that. And thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Thanks to Ed and Matt for coming along to tackle a bunch there. And I think we did get through more than we usually do. The sad news, of course, is that that means we've reached the end of Series 4. We hope you've enjoyed the series as much as we have. And while I'm, of course, very sad that the series uh, is over, I'm looking forward to giving myself a little break from the research involved in putting the show together. Given the notes and scripts for this series have run to over 160,000 words in total. So I'm going to try not to look at Word documents quite so much over the next few weeks. As you can tell, that's a lot of work that involves having to neglect other parts of my job and even my home life from time to time. But we do already have our list of episodes for Series 5, and it won't be long before I'm working my way through old magazines and revisiting all sorts of interviews and books to put together those episodes as well. We'll start recording Series 5 later this year, and Bring Back V10s will return with new episodes at the start of 2022.